Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. thinking this week, uh, and Pastor Luke, I get, because I'm dad, I get to tell stories about him. I remember when he was a young man, he was a rather persnickety guy. He liked things clean, but every once in a while, his room was a little messy. Well, okay, a lot messy, but uh, having uh, been blessed with the mean genes as a pastor, uh, I decided to capitalize on these teaching moments to help him grow and all the other children grow in character. And so if his room was especially messy, I would walk into his room and I would say something like, Luke, I am so thankful to you for thinking of this brilliant idea. He'd kind of look at me quizzically. I said, eh, what are you talking about now? I said, eh, incredibly insightful that you would create an obstacle course in case a bad guy came into our house, you would trip him and then you would pounce on him. Thank you, son, for helping our family. All right, Dad, I get it. I get it. I'll clean my room. He was more happy to and easy to clean his room and listen to his dad drag on for sure. Well, I hope that each of us will do some spring cleaning, not in our homes. Maybe that's necessary, but certainly in our spirit. All of us need to look into God's amazing work. And so I'm glad you're in the house today. And for those of you that join us online, our growing online family, we love you and wish you could be with us. All right, the commands of Christ. This morning's message is five commandments for church members. I love the church. It is the very center of certainly, at the very center of my life. And it has been, really, since childhood. My father was a first-generation believer and became a pastor. When I, had, when I was born, he had just become a pastor, actually started a church in Vancouver, Washington. I literally grew up in church. I was born on Sunday. <laughs> it is the place where I was led to know the knowledge of God. It's a place where I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's the place where I learned about the amazing power of prayer and the exhilaration of worshiping God. I still just so much love to come and worship God. It's a place where I learned where real love is. Never any place in the world like a church and a family to find out what love is. Many of the happiest moments of my life occurred at church. It was because of church that I experienced the leading of God, the filling of the Holy Spirit to bring me to a point where I knew God.
God wanted me to not be a doctor of the physical, which what the scholarship was, but to lay that aside and become a doctor of souls. It is in church I met Lynette, who is in heaven, and my dear wife Pauline, both met in church. We have raised our children in church. Our grandchildren are being raised in church, and now great-grandchildren, seeing them toddle along. It's just a thrill. I have met friends and partners in ministry of a lifetime. The church touches every part of my life. In fact, you could say it is my life. People sometimes ask me, they say, I'm not sure why they asked me recently, more than I have, but they say, uh, well, what are your next plans, Pastor? And I tell them, I am a pastor. I love the church to do anything else. I plan to be a pastor until I die. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, and I echo that, if God calls you to be a minister, don't stoop to becoming a king. And so, all that being said, I think it will give perspective when I say this morning, I cannot understand people who do not have a similar love for church, who aren't eager for every opportunity to worship together with like-minded believers. I can't understand, honestly, I can't understand people who want to go to church on Saturday night so or time shifts so that they don't mess up their Sundays. I don't get it. Why are you so eager to get away from church, those that have that attitude? I mean, where else would you rather be? I, I don't get it. We read headlines regularly, such and such denomination are hemorrhaging members, or national church attendance is declining. And it seems more and more that that is the case. But the biblical command for a vibrant corporate faith is very clear. But it seems like it's being replaced with what many are saying, well, I'm not into organized religion. How strange is that? There was a time in America when coming to Christ meant coming to church. And in fact, as far back as the book of Acts, chapter 2, just read chapter 2 in the book of Acts. When you became a believer, you were automatically brought into fellowship with a local, visible gathered body of Christ. That was automatic. But that's changed for many. More and more you find a very low emphasis on corporate involvement. And when you start talking about actual local church membership, boy, it just begins to be so small. Too many people today, it seems like, are victims of consumerism. That mindset is spilling over to the church and ecclesiastically. Sadly, so many just seem like, well, I'm just into what I can get out of church. Many have little to no attachment to a local church at all. They feel no other obligation to regular attendance, let alone membership. I mean, it's kind of like if I make it, I make it. If I don't, no big deal. To those who have that kind of faith, it's only personal. But there's no corporate commitment or responsibility to the The very thing that Jesus founded the church. In Scripture, the idea of a believer living independent of a church is absolutely foreign. It is not in the New Testament. And so this leads me, and it, I think, sets up what we're going to talk about today. Why God gave John in 
Revelations 2 and 3, five commandments for church members. So this would be uh, what we would say our final B commandments, B-E, commandments uh, of Christ that we ought to put into our lives. And then the next Sunday, have a wonderful Mother's Day. And so in two weeks, we'll pick it up again. And we'll move on to more of the wonderful New Testament commands, some of those amazing 900 New Testament commands. I'm trusting you play close attention this morning. A pastor was in a small church, and he was greatly annoyed by one of his elderly members who kept falling asleep during his sermon every Sunday. After service one day, the pastor said to the older man's grandson, who always sat with his grandson, he said, if you'll keep him awake, I will pay you a dollar a week. Well, it worked wonderfully for two weeks. And to the pastor's joy, the aged man was alert and into the message. It was just a thrill to see. On the third Sunday, however, there he was, up to his old tricks, sound asleep in the pew. After the service, the pastor, just a little irritated, called the boy over and said, I'm disappointed. Didn't I promise you a dollar a week to keep your grandfather awake? He said, well, yes, but Grandpa gives me $5 not to disturb him. (laughs) Now, I can't promise you a dollar or five dollars this morning, but I hope every grandma and grandpa will pay attention today. And every mom and dad and every child, stay awake. Because these commands touch each one of us. They are the commandments of Christ about the local church. So today, this is the message we need. Let's pray. Father, I bow the knee. As best I know, Lord, I have bowed my knee to you, to your word. I thank you for saving me so many years ago. I thank you for the privilege of serving in church and for the privilege of being called to your service. And now, Lord, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, will communicate this message. Lord, any preparation or any verses that are said can only go as far as the heart, the soft heart, will allow it to be planted. And Lord, if it takes a humor, if it takes some direct speaking, whatever it takes, help us, Lord, to bow our knee to this truth. Lord, I pray that you teach us and teach this amazing church, this great church. I love it, Lord, and I'm so grateful for each. Thank you for our guests that are here. I pray that you'll minister to us through them and to them. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 today. You want to get out your Bible or open your iPad there or your phone. Now in Revelation 2 and 3, if you are familiar at all with the book of Revelation, you know that these chapters are written to seven churches. Now, they are real, historical churches that have been each given a letter. They are real churches in real cities. Asia Minor, back then, what we call Turkey today. God, the Holy Spirit, gave each church a letter through the great apostle John specifically applied to their situation at that time. But these assemblies were not only historical churches, we could call them perennial churches. And the fact that these churches 
were representative churches. That is, they really represent churches that continually exist throughout the church age. As you go through these churches, you will see that each has strengths and weaknesses. Four of the seven have some issues that were not so good mixed with good. And you'll see as you go through them kind of a descending order. Two of the churches, while not perfect, we have nothing negative mentioned about those. That was the church in a town called Smyrna and the one in Philadelphia. They seem to be all around good churches. Then there was one church, the church at Laodicea, where nothing good is written. Although, even to that church, God throws out a lifeline. He said, there's some hope there. Now, these letters are 2,000 years old. It's amazing. Yet, when you read through them, they, when you really understand them, interpret them, and apply them, they speak to churches today. And God, in these verses, gives us five things that need to be in those churches. He said, I want these to be. That Greek word, genomai, something I want you to make to happen. Be active, proactive. Make it be in your life. If you want your best experience at church, then make these five commandments happen. In his book, The Family of God, Barrett Baxter said, There are some who think of the church as an organization. And it is true the church has organization. But primarily, it is an organism. It is a vibrant, living entity, a new way of life. Your church becomes my church, just as it is my club or my political party or my team. But more, a Christian's loyalty to his church in reality is a loyalty to Christ himself. A person's church membership is like no other membership. Five commandments for church members. Number one. Be faithful. If you're writing these down, open up your app and you can put them there and record it for you and you can have it. Download the app if you want to. Go to the app store on Church Lodi. Be faithful. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. What could be more indicative of a genuine Christianity than faithfulness? That's what we sang about a few moments ago. Look at verse number 10, if you would, please. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, and that word has been called the divine highlighter of the Bible. It is an especially striking or important moment. When God says, behold, he wants you to stop. Put a big old underline underneath this and say, okay, what happens next is going to be important. Behold, the devil. And that's just not evil. That is a personal entity that is evil. Notice what it says. The devil shall, not maybe, but absolutely will come after you. You realize that when you wake up tomorrow morning, you have a stated enemy. He is going to do everything he can to destroy your day. Mess up your marriage, to mess with your kids, to destroy your health, to just do everything he can. He is going to do all he can. He shall cast some of you into prison. And he wants to bind people with chains of terrible habits and thoughts that ye may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days. But be thou faithful unto death. 
I will give thee a crown of life. Now, the context for us is not to go through all these word by word, but the thought is about church membership. The church at Smyrna here was a smaller town, about 90 miles, excuse me, 40 miles north of the big city of Faithfulness, <laughs> Ephesus. It was a church that had been faithful in a very hostile environment. Historically, uh, this entire area was controlled by the vast Roman Empire. The Caesar at this time was Domitian. Domitian was a very evil, murderous dictator. He was threatened by truth. Sound familiar? He launched, because of that, oppressive persecution against any Christian church. But as bad as that was, the strange thing was the persecution ended up purifying good churches like the one at Smyrna. Fake Christians, they just kind of quietly assimilated into the culture. No one was heard of them. They didn't need the headache that came with being faithful to Christ. And as it's often been said, suffering destroys false faith, but strengthens firm faith. And as God's people, we need to be reminded often that persecution is inevitable if you stand for truth. But we enjoy the upside of living for God, so, you know, we can endure that downside for sure. Notice what the senior pastor, Paul, told his young associate in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 12. He said, yes, it's a fact. All that live godly as a Christian in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And when it happens, it will. At work, you might be put on a board or on your team. Or at school, you wear a t-shirt that says, I believe in Jesus Christ. Or like that one little young man that wore that t-shirt, I believe in there's only two genders. I'm telling you, there's going to be persecution. But if that's the case, Smyrna Church will be an example of our faithfulness. And not only faithfulness, but fearlessness. Look what it says in verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Fear not. Be thou faithful. That's that familiar Greek word, faithful. Still, it means to rely, be trustworthy and steadfast and unswerving. How long? Until death. Until death. It's interesting, really, the principle of faithfulness in the Bible, even though the principle is throughout Scripture. This is actually the only time in the entire Bible where it gives the command, be faithful. Be faithful. Whatever the cost, as church members, be faithful until the time of death. Not a flash-in-the-pan man, no. Not a person who is a mere professor of God, but a possessor of Christ. Faithful until the last breath. Faithful is a key word in the Bible. Faithful church members. In fact, Revelation chapter 17 says it is one of the three characteristics of those who return with Jesus when He judges the earth. Look what verse 14 says of that chapter. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. That's a good preaching outline right there. They are faithful. It is good to know that God is faithful. He's called us to be faithful. When God says He'll do something, He will do it. 
If it were not the case, if God were unfaithful even once, he would cease to be God. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he confirmed that. First Kings chapter 8 and verse 56. There hath not failed one word, not even one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. Not even one word. Now having said that, we live in a day where commitment and keeping promises is a rare commodity. It should come then as no surprise that church membership has become a low priority to so many people. Thomas Trask, who wrote in the book The Choice, and I like that title, it's a choice. He said this, 10% of church members cannot be found anymore. 20% of church members never attend church. 25% say they never pray. 35% confess they don't even read their Bibles. 40% admit to not tithing the actual Stat, I'm sure, is far higher, but that's what admit to it. 60% never give to special offerings. 70% never assume responsibility in the church. 85% never invite anyone to church. But 100% expect, of course, to go to heaven. The fact of the matter is, faithfulness is God's plan for church members. These Smyrna members were committed and they were constant. I mean, they were in church on Sunday. They often had meetings during the week. And if it was a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday, it made no difference. They were seven-day-a-week Christians. One pastor I read of, by the name of Jim Cain, had a novel idea to explain the nature of a relationship between a committed Christian and his church. And he likened it to what's said in the wedding vows, like the beautiful vows we saw here yesterday. He said, what would happen if we would kind of change our membership process and have some vows? Like, will you, Tim Pollock, take your church to be your church? Will you live together in a covenant of membership? Will you love and honor and keep your church and be faithful as long as you live? Do you, Tim Pollock, take your church to be your church from this day forward in good times and tough times? Will you love and serve as God is your witness? And I realize it's only an illustration and maybe over the board, but here's the fact. The truth is, Jesus does desire His bride, the church, to be faithful. And so the first command is, be faithful. If I'm going to be a kind of a church member that Christ wants, be faithful. Number two, be watchful. Be watchful. That's in chapter 3 and verse number 2. Now we're looking at the fifth of the seven letters to the churches, and this one is to the church at Sardis. This really is a sad letter because... It's a rather tragic church. The church was on the verge of dying. Look at verse 2 of of chapter 3. Be, there's that word again, be, make it happen, be watchful, and strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. I'm telling you, you are on life support. This church was on life support. For I have not found thy works to be perfect before God. Very telling words about the nature of this church. It was ready to die. Now the exact opposite and reverse of the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was being put to death, and yet it was very much alive. Sardis, at least on the surface, appeared to be alive, but it was almost dead. The opposite of what I read about in the news feed back in February of this year. You probably read about it. I looked it back up this week. On the 6th of February, I read this article. An 82-year-old woman was pronounced dead at a New York nursing home. Sad. Only to be found breathing 
three hours later at the funeral home where she had been taken. Can you imagine? Crazy thing was, it was the second time in a month something like that that had happened. It's crazy. Folks, the fact of the matter is, Sardis was a church that was in the funeral home. It only had a few breaths left. Because sin kills. And that's what Ephesians 2 and verse 1 says, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Sin kills. It not only kills people, but it kills churches. And I've been in a few of the world's great cathedrals. I've been privileged to do that. I was in Notre Dame before it had its big fire. It was in Westminster Abbey. If you saw the coronation at all, you saw that. Strange thing about those places, however, even weird in a sense. When you're walking there among the pews of the church and the aisles, there are people buried all along the sides of the inside of the church there. In Westminster Abbey, uh, Edward the Confessor, Anne of Cleves, Sir Isaac Newton. I'm sure it was a great honor for them, but to be honestly, it's kind of strange. You're sitting in there having church when all these folks are buried there. But it seems something kind of indicative of the way churches sometimes are, kind of dead. And that's why the Holy Spirit said, watch out for sin. Be watchful or your church will die. Tragically, the Sardis church apparently had been populated by a large number of unconverted people. And there are a lot of churches today that know about God, but don't know God. There's a great deal of difference. God is not simply a God to be studied, but to be known. That's why God said, preach the Word. It's not psychobabble we need, friends. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Real churches need the gospel, and it's the gospel of Jesus. You know, the unique thing about the church is it has the gospel. And the only answer the world has to its problem is the gospel. The church has the answer to the world's needs. The gospel brings with it the convicting power of God. Someone not long ago said about a particular local liberal church in the area that had uh, performed a a marriage, a same-sex marriage. They said, isn't that awful? They said, can you imagine doing that in a church? And my response, yeah, that is not good. It's terrible, in fact. But the truth of the matter is, that's not a church. Because a church boldly stands against sin. That's not a church anymore. It's a club. That's why God said, be watchful or you're just going to become a club. Wake up, he said. Be watchful. That's what that means. Wake up. You cannot be indifferent about sins. Folks, you hear me. It is unfaithful for churches not to name sin and to call for repentance. Just look at the Old Testament prophets. They preached it straight and clear. Even Jesus is preaching during his earthly ministry. You remember what he did in Matthew chapter 23? Boy, I'm telling you what, he laid it on the line. This was our loving Lord, and look what he said. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And then, just so they wouldn't misunderstand what he was saying, verse 33, you serpents, you snakes, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Very un-Jesus-like, I would say, of our Savior. But the fact is, we need to have straight Bible preaching. Consider the apostles. 
Like Paul, what a straight message. First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. Nope. No punches pulled there. Flee fornication. I mean, you need to get away from that sin. God's spokesman, of course, always preach the glorious gospel, the gospel of love and the gospel of forgiveness. But at the same time, there must be an earnest denunciation of sin. Hear me now. Never be a member of a church who does not, that they are not faithful to the Word of God, and they do not preach against sin. Some say, well, I just want to go to a church where they preach love and peace and joy. Let me just say that is a good thing. Those are wonderful fruits of the Spirit. But you understand, of course, those are sanctification. That's not salvation. And if you'll clearly read Galatians chapter 5, you will understand that before you can have sanctification, you have to have salvation. It comes before. To try and sanctify someone into heaven is getting the cart before the horse. It's not going to work. You know, today we have so many products that are new and improved. New and improved. Did you know that you can't new and improve the lost soul? It doesn't work that way. There has to be repentance and then transformation. And then comes sanctification. Peace, love, and joy. But first, there must be repentance. Well, we must be faithful to the church. We must be watchful of the church. Number three, we must be powerful. First. Chapter 3 and verse 2, the third step, be watchful and strengthen. Be strong. There are some things that are remaining, but they're ready to die. Strengthen the church. The question I would ask this morning is this. Am I strengthening the church or am I weakening the church? A probing question. How about if I ask the question, if every church member was like me, what kind of a church member would I have? You know what the apostles constantly encouraged people? They said, you need to have koinonia. That's the Greek word. Dr. Luke explained it when he talked about the early church in Acts chapter 2. He said they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's good. That's the Bible preaching. But also in fellowship. The Greek word koinonia just means partnership. Partnership. Paul described that partnership in Galatians chapter 2. He said, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. Paul was so grateful to this church. He said, you partnered, you koinoneed with both I and my friend Barnabas. You joined hands. You gave us the right hand of fellowship. And that's exactly what happens in church membership. When an individual publicly identifies with a body of believers, he enters into a spiritual partnership with that congregation. It's a public affirmation. I am here to pray for you. I am here to support you. I am here to strengthen you as best I can. That's why this modern trend of being a floater, people who never plant themselves in a one place, is foreign to Scripture. Can you imagine in the early days, the early church, coming up to the great apostle Peter and saying, yeah, well, I'm glad uh, about this Christian stuff, but uh, 
I can't really tie myself up on Sundays. Really? Can you imagine telling the Apostle Peter that? I used to love being a teenager. We used to have these tug-of-war contests. I don't know, there's something exhilarating about grabbing that rope and digging in your heels and joining a bunch of guys all pulling together, shouts of encouragement, insults at the other team, of course, you know. But we'd get our biggest guy and tie the rope around him, and he would be the anchor. It was the ultimate teamwork. Tug-of-war, you know, you're pulling together. But oh, how I hated it when someone on our team would let go, they got tired, or several somebodies would let go. The momentum would fade and then finally switch and you'd be drugged across that muddy center line. It was terrible. When you let go of the rope, it's a terrible feeling. Let me say, friend, this morning as never before, we are in a tug of war with evil. And we need everybody on board. We need everybody pulling together. That's what koinonia is. It is partnering and pulling together with the right hand of fellowship and the left hand of fellowship. Doing more than making just Sunday fun day. Five commandments for church members. Be faithful. Be watchful. Be powerful. Strengthen the church. Don't weaken it. And number four, be zestful. Chapter 3 and verse 19. Now we go to the church of Laodicea. Laodicea was once a very famous city by the river of Lycus. It was known for three magnificent marble theaters. It's amazing aqueduct system. These aqueduct systems would sometimes deliver putrid water if things didn't go well. That's why God in this chapter talks about spewing them out. It was surrounded by hills, a very picturesque area. But for all its beauty and technology, the church had a light that was just about out, not in good shape at all. Look at verse 19, as many as I love. God loves His church, and He even loves those that are in bad shape. He loves, and it's not unloving to tell the truth. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous. Be zealous, therefore. Be, make the effort. In fact, it's in the continual sense of the word. Continually be zealous. Don't ever let go. Zealous is the same word as hot. It's the same word in verse 15, where God said, I would that you were hot. That's the same word there. He said, I want you to be zealous. I want you to be hot for God. He wants His people to be on fire. He wants them not to be simply churchgoers, but goers and blowers. What is zealous? Zealous could be defined in Scripture as focused desire, commitment. Now, the Bible often talks about people being zealous, followers being zealous. Twenty times in the Old Testament, God says people are to be zealous. Twelve times in the New Testament. In fact, one of the ways that God establishes the Messiah, the great prophet Isaiah said in chapter 9, verse 7, He establishes the Messiahship with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. How is Jesus going to be made Messiah? It was God's zeal, being focused, a focused desire. Jesus in John chapter 2, there when he cast and turned over those money changers' tables, displayed zeal. When you hear the word zeal, sometimes you think, well, we're talking about a zealot, a fanatic or weird or radicalized. Not at all. 
The Bible doesn't see zeal as an emotion, but rather as a an expression of faith. It's not some weird, extreme thinking, no. To become zealous is to be on fire for God about the truth of God. The more we know about the Lord, the more zealous we do become. Later in John chapter 2, here's what His disciples said about Jesus in verse 17. His disciples remembered what was written. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Jesus' zeal that day in the day in the temple mirrored, and this is a quote actually from the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, Jesus' zeal in the temple that day, his zeal for the temple, his zeal for protecting the church, God's house, it mirrored David's zeal for the temple. Following in the steps of David and following in the steps of Jesus, then God wants us to be eaten up with zeal about the house of God. God wants us to be a church member that prays with zeal and gives with zeal and serves with zeal. Now, I know sometimes people are thinking about becoming members. And you attend occasionally, and that's good. Some attend regularly, and that's even better. But when you have a zeal for the house of God, you report for duty and you say, I'm here to become a member. I remember my dad telling me that as a young man, he lived in Montana. He heard that his country had been attacked by a foreign nation there at Pearl Harbor. And he went down and he enlisted. Now, dear friends, I will tell you, God's truth is under attack as never before. And we need zealous people to enlist for the army of God. You say, well, Pastor, I'm thinking about it. And that's good. I will say that. And I want you to make an informed decision always, of course. But friend, that shouldn't take decades. (laughs) Some of you folks remind me of the fellow whose boss told his new worker, you work really slow. You walk really slow. I've watched you during lunch and you ate your sandwich really slow. Is there anything you do fast? He said, well, I get tired really fast. (laughs) I mean, really, folks, some of you, you're so quick to become a member of Costco, and yet you think of every reason in the world not to become a member of God's superpower, the local church. The fact of the matter is no church is going to check all your boxes. It's impossible. But the zeal for the house of God should consume us. And let me just add this. You know I'm eager for people who will join with us and get behind what we're doing. And that's no, I make no secret of that. But you need to know this, and I hope you're listening right now. Did you know that if you become a member of a church that is preaching the gospel... And if you support a prophet, did you know that you get a special blessing? Jesus himself threw that out there. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 41. When you support a prophet of God, you get a prophet's reward. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. I hope that each one of you get a prophet's reward. How do you get that? When you support a gospel preacher, a zealous church. Zealous members with a zealous pastor. A zealous church is a church where the discouraged folks cheer up. Where dishonest folks 
fess up. Sour folks, sweeten up. Closed folks, open up. Gossipers, shut up. Conflicted folks, make up. Sleeping folks, wake up. Lukewarm folks, fire up. But most of all, Christ, the Savior of the entire world, is lifted up. A zealous people in a zealous church. Be faithful, be watchful, be powerful, be zestful. Finally, be remorseful. Verse 19, get serious about God. If there's any habits that aren't pleasing to the Lord, get rid of them. But as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous and be repenting. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. It's as if God is saying, look, I appreciate all the activity, but let's get rid of these bad habits that hinder the cause of Christ. When the great apostle Paul had a pastor's conference in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he gave the plan to these pastors for reaching the world. He said, there's only one plan, repentance. Acts 20 and verse 21, testifying to both the Jews and the Greeks, everybody needs it. It's not one salvation for one group and one for another, no. Repentance towards God, that is a change of mind about God in the Bible, and then faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, repentance is two sides of the same coin. It is changing our mind about sin and God and the Bible, and then going toward Jesus Christ is doing a 180 for the Lord. It is time to look at things differently. It's time to act differently. It is time to act biblically and not culturally. I close. One clever Christian author compiled what he called the Laodicean church songs. Based on hymns, these are hymns that won't trigger people, that will make them feel uncomfortable about sin and the Bible and make them feel more comfortable about coming to church. Here are some of them. You've heard of a mighty fortress is our God? Well, not to be extreme, let's change it to a comfy mattress is our God. Great is thy faithfulness? It's better to say above average is thy faithfulness. Or how about amazing grace? How interesting the sound. Or I surrender some. Or for the intellectuals among us, I'm fairly certain that my Redeemer lives. For doubters, my hope is built on nothing much. And then for the non-commitment types, oh, how I like Jesus. Or, Spirit of the living God falls somewhere near me. <laughs> and then for the snowflakes, pillow of ages, fluff for me. Sit up, sit up for Jesus, or even take my life and let me be. <laughs> and then finally, when the saints go sneaking in, and where he leads me, I will consider following. It's sad that life has come to the point where it's considered extreme to be zealous for God and to be watchful and uh, be part of God's super church. You know, the greatest organization, organism in the world outside of the family is the local church. The Bible says about it, the gates of hell cannot even prevail against the church. You have to laugh at these tech companies anymore. I mean, I just get so tickled. They... Amazon or Apple or whatever, they get so proud about what they're doing and all, you know, how big they are and what their market share and all that. Do you realize they don't even hold a candle to God's church? Pastor Russ Blowers is a pastor in the Indianapolis area, or was. He also was involved in his local Rotary Club. At that club, each week, 
different members of the club would give a brief statement about their job and what they do. Well, when it was his term, Pastor Blowers really put things in perspective. And I read what he said to them. Here's a pastor talking to the Rotary Club about what he does. I'm with a global enterprise. We have branches in every country of the world. We have representatives in nearly every parliament, every boardroom on earth. We're into more than motivation and behavior alteration. We're into transformation. We run hospitals, feeding stations, crisis pregnancy centers, universities, publishing houses, and nursing homes. We care for our clients from birth till death. We are into life insurance and fire insurance. We perform spiritual heart transplants. Our original organizer owns all the real estate on earth plus an assortment of galaxies and constellations. He knows everything and lives everywhere. Our product is free for the asking, and yet there's not enough money to buy it. Our CEO was born in a small town, worked as a carpenter, didn't own a home, was misunderstood by his family, hated by enemies, was condemned to death without a trial, and then arose from the dead. And I get to talk with him every day. Now, friends, I'm telling you what, it is nothing like being part of God's church. God's church. Would you bow your heads with me, please? On Christ the solid rock, I We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.